doing good? Anybody not doing as good when you look up there and saw what the message is? Excited? Mm, you're in the minority. I bet. How many people are excited about this conversation? A couple people? Just to sort of get a, a feel of the landscape then, how many people would say you identify with Calvinism? <laughs> That's probably a good thing, a really good thing. Yeah, so the way this kind of came about is I was talking with Joe on Thursday. We just were talking about what you guys were talking about, predestination and all that kind of stuff. And I was saying, yeah, when I talked about it, I went, this is the way I sort of went or whatever. And he said, well, man, if you've already talked about it, then why don't we talk about it? You know, if you've already got your notes. And I was like, oh, man, it's Thursday. I need like three weeks to prepare for this. But it was a blessing that that's the way it happened. And how, how many of you know God's timing is always perfect, <laughs> whether we think it is or not? Because if I'd have had more time, we'd have had more than 75 slides today. Oh, which is how many we, we have. So I apologize. Um, at any point, again, stop me. Say, hold on, wait, 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 you're going too fast, you're talking, saying too much, it's too much, or whatever. Um, and maybe I'll have to come back and talk again at some point. But uh, So we're going to get into this, Calvinism and Arminianism. So how many people would say you are a black and white kind of thinker? That means you don't like gray, I want it this or this. I want it this or this. Well, that is me. So today, for all of us people that share that kind of propensity, uh, we may be a little unsatisfied with the outcome. Because I don't know that we're going to settle a whole lot today. Okay? And, and I find comfort in that as much as it bugs me, and I want to know. I'm, I'm the kind of person I want to be able to take a stand and say, this is, this is what I believe, 100%. Um, there's a comfort in knowing that this is a conversation that has gone on for hundreds of years between people that love the Lord, love the Scriptures, and still disagree. And how many people know that this is not, this should not be a dividing issue? Okay, this is not a, a primary um, issue where this is a, a heaven or hell issue. It's not that. And so this is one of those peripheral issues, still very important, still needs to be discussed, still has amazing implications on the way that we, we live our lives and the way that we read Scripture. But at the end of the day, this should not be something that divides. Okay, so I would say we need to be a, maybe a little bit cautious, digging in our heels and saying, I know this is the truth, and I'm going to stand on this truth, and, uh, and I'm not going to even consider something else. Okay, so let's, let's talk about a couple scriptures real quick just to lay the foundation of, of what I hope our attitude will be, um, sort of where our heart is as we begin to talk this. So Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, that's always a great place to start. When we start talking about reading scripture and getting into some of these really tough issues is to understand the difference between God and us. Okay, and I, and I think we may verbalize that we understand that, but I think in other times we say things that maybe deny that. Um, when I say things like, um, well, I just don't think that's the case. Well, well be careful. That you're, you're saying, I don't think this is the case, assuming that my thoughts naturally line up with God's thoughts. And the Bible's going to make it pretty clear. Us with our finite little brains are trying to understand an infinite God. Okay? The all-knowing God. We're trying to understand Him. And Isaiah's going to make that pretty clear. There's a huge gap between us. Okay? Romans 11, 33 through 36. Going to tell us the same thing. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of how unsearchable His judgments and His past beyond tracing out. And I love that. Beyond tracing out. We're never going to fully understand God. I heard Matt Chandler Pastor Matt Chandler made this, this statement one time. He said, we do not believe in something that is unreasonable, but we do believe in that can't be reasoned out. Okay? And I love that statement. Is, is our faith unreasonable? Absolutely not. 
Are there things that we can absolutely stand on and be firm about? Absolutely. Does that mean that we know all of the answers and can figure everything out and trace them all out? Have not. Right? Ravi Zacharias um, used to say this. We can make meaningful statements about reality without making comprehensive statements about reality. So I can say things that are meaningful without knowing everything. Okay? Verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? What's the answer to that? Right? No one. Or who has been his counselor? Okay, that's the, the natural answer to these questions. But I want to ask this question as well, because before we put ourselves in this bucket of, well, God's just unknowable, he's unsearchable, I can't know anything about God, his ways are so much higher than mine, there's nothing that I can ever know. There are other scriptures that are going to tell us, hey, there are things that we can know, right? Um, who has the mind of the Lord? Paul is going to tell us that the Holy Spirit has the mind of God, knows the mind of God, right? Who has the Holy Spirit? Every single one of us, right? We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. The one who knows the very mind of God indwells us. For what purpose? Part of which is to give us the mind of Christ. So we begin to see things as Christ sees, th sees things. Right? So there are things to be known about God that are revealed to us through the Holy Spirit. Okay, James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, so if we want to know, if we want to know these things of God, if we want to know the ways of God, what should we do? We should ask. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is going to tell us one of these ways that God reveals this to us. Does God reveal his wisdom to us in our prayer time through the Holy Spirit directly speaking to us? Absolutely. But the scriptures become one of the primary ways we find out the will of God, that we find out the character of God. Okay, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. Okay, now I love that because we have these two different sides um, that are both true. Is God unsearchable and unknowable? Is he, uh, his ways so far above ours that we could never comprehend God fully? Absolutely. While at the same time, there are things that God reveals to us that he wants us to know. Okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29, one of my favorite verses, I think sums both of these things up. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. How many people know that there are things that we will never understand about God? We just can't with our infinite mind, our infinite perspective. We can't see things the way that God sees. We don't have all the information that God does, right? So there are certain things that, that belong to him we will never be able to fully understand. It says, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. Okay, so there are things that belong to God, but there are things that are revealed to us. And what we have to do is make sure that we're not too quick to throw things into either one of those buckets. Right? So when we read something that's really, really challenging, we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, there's no point studying it. What's the point? I'll never know it. It's, these are the faults of God. Who can understand that? We don't do that. Neither do we go, I've got to understand all of this. I can understand all of this. Okay? So this is something that we have to be able to wrestle with. All right, so with that being said, now let's start talking about this, Calvinism and Arminianism. What is this all about? So John Calvin was somebody who lived uh, around 1500, 1550 in that area, and he wrote about a whole bunch of things on the Bible, right? He had a lot of commentary on, on what he believes Scripture says, what Scripture teaches, all those kinds of things, okay? Um, this guy named Jacob Arminius comes along about 50 years later. He's about 1550 to 1600. And he comes along. He's reading the works of Calvin, and he says, man, there's some things that I really have a problem with. So he writes what's called his, his five points of remonstrance. And remonstrance means objection. So these are five points of objection that he has with some of Calvin's writings. Okay, so in this, he starts to state, out, state some of these objections that he has about, um, about the sovereignty of God, about free will, and these kinds of things. Right? So he lists these five points. About 20 years later or so, this group of people, um, these, these Calvinists, these people who followed Calvin, reformed thinkers, come along and they, they want to give a statement in accordance to these five points of remonstrance. They give a response to this. And this is where we get the five points of Calvinism. Okay, so Calvinism actually didn't develop 
with Calvin, as weird as that sounds. Are these some of his least? Yes, but he wasn't the one who gives us tulip, which is what we're going to talk about here in a couple of minutes, right? These five points of Calvinism actually come from this, this council of tort, the synod of, of Dort that comes along, and they're the ones who gives these, these five answers to the five criticisms of Arminians, of Arminius, okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so now let's look at Romans 8, 28 through 30, and we're, this is kind of uh, one of those key passages sort of a battleground passage that when you read this passage, you're going to have Calvinists who would say, I believe it says this, and Arminians who are going to say, I believe it means this. All right? So starting with verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so, now, predestination. Is predestination biblical? Predestination biblical. Okay, it depends, okay? Obviously, it's biblical, and then we just read the word. So, is predestination in the Bible? Yes, but how you define that term is what makes it either biblical or unbiblical, okay? And that's where the battleground is. It's how do you define a couple of these terms? How are we going to define predestined? How are we going to define foreknew? Okay, the word predestined in the Greek, simply means to determine ahead of time. Determine ahead of time. So does God determine things ahead of time? Yes. Okay? Arminians would agree with that. Calvinists would agree with that. Okay? Things are determined ahead of time. This is a biblical teaching. The question becomes, what is determined ahead of time? How is it determined? Okay? That's where the difference is going to come in. And the big part comes in the word foreknew. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. So ahead of time, God determined that there were going to be people that were going to be saved. There were going to be people who were going to be conformed to the image of his. Okay? Now, Calvinists would say, well, actually, let's talk about the word foreknew for a second. In the Greek, it's two words that are stuck together, and what it means is to know ahead of time. The foreknow means to know ahead of time. Now, where the disagreement comes is this. A, a Arminian with the word foreknew and see it just as an intellectual knowledge of something. Okay, so what they would say is that God knew ahead of time who would be saved and who would choose him. Does that make sense? That would be their contention, that God in all of his infinite wisdom, hands outside of time, is able to look throughout eternity, past and, and future, and be able to say, hey, I know exactly who are going to be those people who will put their faith and their trust in me, and therefore I will save those people. Okay, so predestination, we're going to see election, um, chosen are words that we're going to see all the time. Are these biblical principles? Absolutely. Okay, God picks people, God chooses people, God elects people, God predestines people. Okay, the question is, on what basis does he do that? Arminians are going to say, it's based on your choice. That God looks into the future, and he knew every single person in here that would put their faith in him. So from eternity past, God said, I choose you. I'm going to choose you. Why? Because you're going to choose me. Okay, Calvinists would look at that word for new, and they would interpret a little bit the second Greek word, as part of those two words that stuck together, is a word for knowledge that has to do with an intimate knowledge, an experiential knowledge, a, a personal knowledge. So this would be the word that would be used for, um, like, Mary knowing Joseph. They didn't know Joseph until after Jesus is born. Okay? The word know means an intimate relational knowledge. So Calvinists would say that God is going to pick people, he's going he's to predestine people for salvation because he wants a relationship with them. Okay? It's not based on their choice. It's not based on whether they're going to pick him or not. God looks into the future and says, I choose you. Why? Because I want a relationship with you. All right? 
Now, these are oversimplifications of what each one of these can be, Calvinism and Arminianism. I can't stress that enough. So most people want to break it down like this. Um, Calvinists are people who are, are sovereignty of God people, right? That God is in control, in control. He's in control of everything. He determines everything. And even in saying that, there's certain Calvinists that would go, no, 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 that he determines everything. So there is disagreement even within these camps. So I, I want to make sure that I'm stressing that. But basically, if you had to break down these two sides, what is Calvinism? What is Arminianism? Calvinists are people who would look and say, God is in control. It's about what his will is and his desire. So why does he determine people? Because he decides that's the way it's going to be. Right? Arminians are people who would look and say, no, 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 I don't agree with that. I, I believe in free will. I believe in free choice that these people that God determines ahead of time are going to come to him, are going to be saved, are people that are going to make the choice to come to him, who are going to decide for themselves they want to come to him. Does that make sense? Again, oversimplification, sovereignty of God, free will. Are there Calvinists who would say, we absolutely believe in free will? Yes, but they would define free will early. We're not even going to get into all that stuff today. Are there Arminians who would say, we absolutely believe in the sovereignty of God? Yes, they would just define that term a little bit differently. Okay? But generally, if you had to give an oversimplification, those are the two camps. Right? Does God make the decision strictly out of his own desires, out of his own will? Or is it based on man's decision? Right? People's decisions and choices of whether to choose God. Right? Well, now you get into a whole nother complicated issue because now what you're asking is, is does the Bible teach double predestination? Right? Double predestination. So predestination, again, is taught in the Bible. Calvinists would agree. Arminians would agree that God determines ahead of time certain things. Well, some people will look at Calvinists and say, so hold on, so you're saying there's actually a double predestination that not only does he pick people for heaven, but he picks people for hell, right? Now, Calvinists, depending on who you ask, again, this, uh, imagine a continuum. You have this continuum of, of Calvinism on this side that would be hyper-Calvinism, as what some people would call it, right, where they believe God determines everything. There really are no free choices at all. God's pulling all things. He's determining every single action, every single choice that everybody makes. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, um, a, a hyper-Arminian person would say, no, 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 our choices are completely independent of God, right? They're not bearing on one another at, at all. God is, is, he will respond to our decisions. God is not pulling the strings. He's not pulling any strings, right? That God has his choices, and man has his choices, and they never inter intertwine. So you have this continuum in between. So even on the Calvinist side, you're going to have predestination, right? There are some people that would go, yes, exactly what you said is true. God picks people for heaven, and he picks people for hell. He's the one who determines it. You really don't have any say in it. There are other Calvinists who would go, no, 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 I don't believe that. And look, I'm getting into it. I said we weren't going to get into it. Um, there are some Calvinists that would say, no, no, no. We believe in double predestination in that, yes, there are two different sides to it. But God is actively going to choose people for heaven, right? He is actively going to pursue you. But the second part of the people with hell, it is God simply allowing you to make the choice and accept the consequences of your choice. Does that make sense? God doesn't force you to make that choice. So they would say this. So a key criticism of Calvinism is going to be, well, that's not fair. Why in the world would God pick some for salvation and not pick others? And what a Calvinist, some Calvinists are going to say is, it's not about fairness. This is strictly about God's mercy. Okay, so imagine this. How many people are sinners? All of us. How many of us deserve hell? So if God were to send us all to hell, is he unfair? He is just. He's not unfair in sending people to hell. Why? Because we have made the choice to, to sin. We have rebelled against God. We have constantly said, I'm going to make a decision. I don't want to follow God. I don't want him. Okay? Because of, we, we deserve hell. That's what the Bible is going to teach us. 
okay? So what Calvinists would say is the people that God does not select, the people he does not choose and elect, those people just simply get what they deserve. Is that unfair? No, so God has not been unfair to those people. He just simply lets, allows them to get what they deserve. The other people God has been merciful to. So you only have two groups of people. You have the group that people have, that God has been merciful to and the people that God has been just to. There is no injustice in this. There's no unfairness in this. No one, no one is in heaven that didn't want to be there. There's no one in hell who didn't want to be there. That's the way they would answer that. Make sense? All right, so now let's get into some of these specific, these specific beliefs. Um, so, again, we, we kind of talked about the Calvin view as a whole, as a general thing. Let's look at Isaiah 46, 10 and 11. I get, think we get another kind of an idea of what they believe. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, and this is the Lord speaking, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Okay, now you hear the sovereignty of God in this. You hear God's control in this. Okay, verse 11. From the east I summon a bird of prey from far off, from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Okay, you hear the certainty in that, right? There is no uh, wiggle room. There is no, hey, this thing that I've planned could happen. It might happen. If people choose the right thing, it could. No, no, no. He says, this is going to happen. Why? Because I've ordained it to happen. Okay? I have chosen it to happen. I have said it is going to happen. I've decreed it's going to happen. Right? That's sort of the Calvinist view. Oversimplification, but sort of the Calvinist view. Arminian view. Galatians 6, 7. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Okay, so what does a man reap? What he sows. Not what God sows, what he sows. Whatever the man chooses to invest in in life, the choices that he makes, he will get the consequences of that. So if man chooses to, um, to follow God, he will reap the benefits of that. If he decides to turn his back against God, he will reap the benefits and, and consequences of that. Okay? So that's sort of the Arminian view. That we, the man has control. He has choices to make. Right? Uh, Proverbs 18, 17. I think this is another one of these key things to try to remember as we get into this argument, as we begin to break down each side of these arguments in some key areas, is this. He who pleads his cause first seems right until another comes and questions him. Now, I love that because most of us that anything about this, this debate have already been conditioned. Whether you know it or not, you already have lenses on. Okay? You already see this, this argument through a certain set of lenses, and we need to be careful of that. that. Just because you've heard this, you've always believed this, doesn't mean that it's right. We have to be willing to consider the other side. Okay? That, that's a wise thing to do. This comes from the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, right? The wise thing to do is make sure we listen to both sides. And what a great lesson that is for everything, right? When, when somebody comes to you and starts telling their side of a story, to be able to go, hold on, wait, i got to be careful. Don't just believe the first person who tells me that. There is another side to this. Maybe I need to listen to. Okay? Uh, Ecclesiastes 7:18. This is the message translation. It says, it's best to stay in touch with both sides of an issue. A person who fears God deals responsibly with all of reality, not just a piece of it. And that's what we want to do this morning. We want to deal with the reality of what Scripture says. We want to look at the totality of Scripture and say, man, I want to take all of this in mind, not just a proof text that I've always heard, okay? So all of us have, maybe, all of us have heard Calvinist arguments or Arminian arguments, and typically we've heard that one side, and we've heard all the proof texts. But what I want, to hear, want us to hear this morning is all the Scriptures, right, that we need to consider in this very complicated issue. Okay, so let's start talking about total depravity of man. Let's start there. Okay, so these, these, uh, this group at the Council of Door came up with this response, and they came up with these five points of Calvinism, that they would say, hey, here's five things that Cal Calvin taught that we believe the scriptures teach. Okay, and they put it in a nice, easy uh, acronym called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, and each one of those stands for something. What each one of those, and we'll give sort of the Arminian response to it. Yeah, we got plenty of time. Okay, so here we go. The T, total depravity. 
total depravity. So the Calvinist view would be this, that man is hopelessly lost, right? That we have no shot of going to God, of coming to God on our own, okay? Um, Calvinists will believe that this is what the Bible teaches. Uh, it's not utter depravity. It doesn't mean that we don't have the ability to do some good things. We're not utterly depraved people who only do evil all the time. We can choose to do good things. We can be kind. We can, we can make the right decision. But as far as coming to God, we got no chance on our own, okay? So these would be the scriptures they would use, some of the scriptures they would use. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who stands. There is no one who seeks God. Okay, so no one is seeking God on their own. Okay, no one just decides, you know what, I'm going to go after God. I think I, I, I want to know God. They're going to say, no, 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 you didn't do that. Just come to that decision on your own. And we'll talk about how our eyes are opened in the right? But you didn't come to that decision by yourself. Ephesians 2, 1 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Okay, so it's not even that we're um, confused. It's not even that we're a little lost. It's not that we're a little, um, a, a little bit uh, unable to do these things. No, we're dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. What do dead men do? Nothing. Nothing. So they would say, you bring nothing. As far as your salvation, you cannot come to it on your own. You were dead in your sins. You can do no more about you being dead in your sins than Lazarus could being dead in the grave. What did Lazarus contribute to coming back to life? Nothing. It was all Jesus saying, get up, right? This is their case for how we come to salvation, that we're all, there's no way in this world that we ever come to God on our own. Why? Because we're dead in our sins, okay? We cannot resurrect ourselves. Romans 5, 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So while we were still powerless, that Greek word means helpless, right? Without strength, there was nothing we could do about it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace you have been saved. Now, it's interesting that as we begin to read some of these passages, what you're going to find is some of these are proof texts for both sides, right? Because it depends on how they interpret them, on how they interpret certain words, just like the word for new. How you decide, or what you decide about that word for new is going to change how you read the passage, okay? This is one of these passages that Calvinists will point to and go, see, this is one of our support texts, one of our proof texts. And our Arminian will come along and go, what are you talking about? A proof text for Arminianism, okay? But the Calvinists would say this, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God did in advance for us to do. Okay, so salvation is a gift. It's not anything that you earned, you didn't do anything to deserve it, God gave it to you, right? Now, a Calvinist would go as far as to say, even the faith is a gift from God. You didn't come up with your own faith. You didn't one day just decide, I'm going to trust in Jesus. No, 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 that God is the one that gave that to you. Now, Arminians would, would disagree with that, and they would say, if you look at the Greek and how it's put together, um, that's not what it says, that they would say, no, those are two separate things, that salvation is the gift, faith is just something that we have, and we'll talk about how we receive that second, okay? But a Calvinist would look at this and say, see, what this is teaching is that you can do nothing to your salvation. It is completely a gift from God. Right, and finally, John 6, 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them at the last day. Okay, so who is it that comes to God? Only the ones that he draws. No one comes of their own. Okay? Now, the Arminian uh, view of this would be exactly the same, in that they would say, yes, man is totally depraved, has no ability to come to God on their own. Right? But they have something called provenient grace. We'll talk about that in a second. But what does provenient mean? What's that word provenient mean? Beforehand. Right? So they would say that there's this grace that God gives us before we come to faith in him. Okay? And this provenient grace is something that we all have where God opens our eyes enough that we can see the glory of God, we can see the beauty of God, and we can make a choice. Okay? The passage for this would be Titus 2, 11. 
It says, for the grace of God, and they would say that this is the provenient grace that, that he's talking about here. Grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to who? All people. Okay, so all people can come to God because of this grace. They can't come on their own. They would agree with Calvin in that the man is totally depraved, dead in their sins, has no ability to come to God on their own, except for this provenient grace, this grace that God gives each and every one of us. It's enough grace to open our eyes to see the glory of God that we can make a choice. Okay, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. So that's the T, total depravity. Unconditional election. Here we start to get into the heat of it, right? Really where the debate starts to come in. Unconditional election. Now, is election a biblical principle? What does election mean? What do we do in an election? We choose. Does God choose? Yes, election is a biblical principle. The question becomes, on what basis does God choose? So Calvin and, and Calvinism and Arminianism both would support the fact that God picks. God chooses. Election is a biblical principle. God, choo God chooses people and picks people. Okay? The question is, on what basis does he pick people? What Calvinists are going to say is it's unconditional election, which means that God picks people under no conditions. God doesn't look and say, well, if you do this, if you do this, I pick you. No, no, no. God just, out of his own will, out of his own desire, chooses. Right? So here's some of the, the to support that. John 1, 12 to 13, says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of hu a husband's will, but born of God. Okay, now again, this is funny because Arminians would look at this text, and they would look at the beginning and go, oh, see, wait. It says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name. So see, it's about belief, it's about trust, it's about my faith, not about God. The Calvinist side would, would focus on verse 13. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision. You didn't make a choice here. You didn't make the decision to do this, to follow God. Okay? God picked you. You didn't pick him. Mark 13, 20 says, If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. And he's talking about end times here. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Okay? So for the elect, the people that God has picked, God has chosen them. He chose them. These words in here, elect and chosen, are two Greek words that are similar, but they're not exactly the same. But what they both have to do with is this personal choice. Right? It's to be selective because of a personal preference. That's the stress of this word here. It's to select for oneself. That's what the word chosen means. So why does God pick you? Because he wants you. Now, as you listen to these arguments, I hope you can hear sort of the positives and the negatives that come along with both of these trains of thought. Okay, how does that make you feel to know that you were hand-selected by God? You were picked by God. Why? Because you're special? Because you have some great ability? Because you'd be a great member of his team? Because you, you, you're going to bring something to the table? No. Why did he pick you? Because he set his affections on you. He loves you, right? Now stop and think about how this plays out as far as my um, expectations that I place on myself, okay? I want to get ahead of myself here, right? But one of the benefits of Calvinism, one of the great joys of Calvinism is to look and say, man, God picked me. I'm in, I'm in his hands because of him. It's not because of me. So when I stumble and fall, I'm not wringing my hands going, oh, my goodness, am I, am I out of shit with God? Because that's not why I was picked anyway, right? It wasn't because of my performance. It's because he loved me and set his affections on me. That's what Calvinism would say. That's what these words elect and chosen means. Okay? Verse 15 and 16. It says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Okay? Seems pretty clear there, right? You didn't pick me, I picked you. Revelation 13, 8. It says, All who live on the earth will worship him. Everyone's name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of the life, a book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. Okay, so we've all heard about this, right? The book of life, that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. When was that book written? 
in eternity past. Before we did anything, before we brought anything to the table, God picked us, selected us, and wrote our name down. Okay? Now, Arminians wouldn't disagree with that. They'd be sure he did. My name's been written down since the beginning of the, of the world. The foundation of the world was laid because God knew I was going to pick him. Okay? So again, so how you want to read this verse? But this is one that Calvinism, Calvinists will use. Ephesians 1, 11 says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Okay, so listen to that. In him we were all chosen. So we were all picked. Why were we selected? And when I say we all, all meaning those who were saved. So if you're a Christian today, you were chosen. God hand-selected you. Why? Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works in conformity with the purpose of his will. So why was I picked? Because it was the will of God. That's why. Nothing else. It has nothing to do with me. It has all, everything to do with the will of God. Romans 9, 10 through 18. Another big passage that's highly debated, but Calvinism would this way. It says, not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, before they did anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now, we don't, most people don't like that verse because of the language of it, hate it. We think of hate as being this thing where God sets his face upon, against somebody because that's the way we would do it. In this context, it's not what the word hate it means. It just means that he wasn't the one that was picked. He wasn't the one that was selected. So this is not uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hate it and I set myself against him and I'm going to do horrible things to him and I'm going to ruin his life. That, that's not what it means, okay? It's not that same kind of animosity. It just simply means I picked Jacob, I didn't pick Esau, right? says, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Okay, so now you hear the objection that comes in that, right? This is the objection that comes with, with Calvinism, with this thought of election. Hold on, God just picked him randomly? It's not because he did anything good or bad. It's just God picked this one and didn't pick him? That's not fair, okay? So a Calvinist would read this section and say, listen, just by that very statement that he makes, the, the fact that he addresses this issue, addresses this question, shows that he's talking about election in this way. That he's picking this person and picking this person based on nothing they did. People look at that and go, well, that's not fair. Why would God pick him and, and not pick him? This is how he's going to answer. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Okay, so what is election based on? What is this predestination based on? God's will. God's desire. God's going to have mercy who he wants to have mercy on. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Right? So Calvinists would read this section and go, seems pretty clear, right? God picks who he wants to pick. Out of what? By what? What's the decision-making process? Just out of his own mercy. God chooses those that he wants to give his mercy to, right? Is that unfair to, to Esau? Is that unfair to other people that he doesn't select for the blessing, that he doesn't select for salvation? No. Why? Because they're choosing to not believe in him anyway, right? So God's not being unfair to them. He is just simply giving them over to the liars, okay? Finally, Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who appointed for eternal life believed. Okay, so who were the people who believed? Those who were appointed eternal life. What's the order of these things? A Calvinist would say, that's the order. You have come to faith because God has chosen you. And Arminian would look and say, it's known as the other way around, right? God knows that you're going to pick him, so therefore he picks you, right? A Calvinist would look at this and say, no, this seems pretty pleasant. All who were appointed for eternal life, all the people that God picked, all the people that God 
predetermined, that God predestined for salvation, believe. They will come to faith. Okay? Here's the Arminian counterpoint to that. They believe in conditional election. An Arminian would look and say, no, 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 God doesn't just arbitrarily pick people, that he picks them because he knows, he foreknows, he foresees exactly what their choices are going to be. So therefore, he picks them and selects them. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. This Peter, an apostle of Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, said, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, now, so they're going to say it's according to the foreknowledge of God. And they're going to do foreknowledge as knowing ahead of time, simply knowing ahead of time. Okay, now, I, wanna, I, I probably should have mentioned this earlier. Is this a wrong interpretation of the word foreknowledge? No, right? Because it's used in both of those contexts that we talked about earlier. Is it in the scripture for God just simply knowing the future? Absolutely. Is it used as far as this personal relational choice? Absolutely. So it's used in both ways question becomes, how is it used in this context? What an Arminian would say is it's used in the context of God knew ahead of time who was going to pick him, selected those people, okay? First Peter 1, 9, if we go on and read a little bit further, it says, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls, okay? Did you hear that? For you are receiving the end result of your faith. What is the end result of your faith? Salvation. Your faith is what brings your salvation. It's not that God saves you and then you believe. It's not that God picks you and chooses you, and then you believe. They would go, no, 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 the order is the other way around. It's based on our choice. It's based on our decision. Isaiah 45, 22. It says, to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Okay, so you hear this plea, and we could go through dozens and dozens of these kinds of scriptures, right? In fact, well, we'll see another one in a second. Where it's going to be turned to me, pick me, choose me. Did it make any sense for those pleas to be in the scripture to choose God if God had already chosen doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, does it? Where time and time again, we're going to read in the scripture, the, in the scriptures that God is going to say, hey, pick me. Why aren't you choosing me? Would be an easy response, because you didn't pick me. Right? That would be the easy response of Calvinism with true. Why, why am I not coming to you? Because you didn't pick me. But time and time again, we have this request of God's hand, please pick me, turn to me, to me, choose me. Okay? If we have no choice in the matter, why are those verses in there? Right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So who are the people who receive eternal life? Those who believe. Now, a Calvinist would say, well, you absolutely got to have faith. Faith is absolutely a part of it. But again, an Arminian would say, is because of your free will choice. You weren't determined ahead of time to believe. Because of your free will choice, you receive salvation. Okay? So where are you following? Calvinist, still an Arminian, changing your mind, a little confused. Let's keep on going. Okay. So that's the T, and that's the U. So we've got total depravity of man, um, unlimited, unconditional atonement, unconditional atonement, unconditional election. All right, ir irresistible grace is the next one. We'll go out of order a little bit. I'm going to take the L and the I um, just for the purpose of seeing the sequence in this. I mean, this is the thing about Calvinism that becomes really, really difficult to refute is because it is a very cohesive strand of thinking. You believe this, and it leads to this, and it leads to this, and it leads to this. So if you're going to pull one of those out, you've got to address the rest of them. Okay, so let me kind of give you the, the thought process. And so man is totally depraved, right? Can't come to God on our own, hopelessly lost, dead in our sins, but then God steps in. Steps in of his own free will, of his own desire to have us as his. He picks us and chooses us. Okay, so now irresistible grace. So irresistible grace is this belief that once God chooses you, once God picks you, he reveals himself to you in such a way that you will come to. It's not that you might, 
There's not, there's not a, a decision to be made. There's not a choice to be made here. You will come to faith. God is going to reveal himself in such a way that is so beautiful and so overwhelming and so glorious that you will come to faith in him. Okay? It is a short, it is a lock. They're going to point at passages like this, John 6, 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me. All right, this is Jesus speaking, right? He's going to say, hey, look, the Father is going to predestine certain people to be in relationship with me. All those people he selects, all those people he picks, they will come to me. There's no question about it, okay? And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. All right, we'll talk about that in a second as well. John 10, 25 to 27, Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not, do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Okay, so why do people not believe? Why do they not come to faith, according to Calvin? Because they're not selected. They're not his sheep. His sheep all come to him. Okay? He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Okay? There's no question about this. There's no sometimes my sheep follow me. No, no, no. The people that I pick, the people that are my sheep, will follow me. And sometimes we get that order mixed. We will look and say we're his sheep because we follow him. They, scripture would say, no, 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 you follow because you're my sheep. Understand the difference there? He's saying, because you have been selected, and I have said, you are my sheep, now you will follow me. Okay? Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, who began the good work? God began the good work in us. We don't begin the good work ourselves. He begins the good work. It says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He will. So if he begins this work in you, he opens your eyes to see this reality, you will choose him, you will follow him, and you will make it to heaven one day. There's no... There's no question about this, according to Calvin, okay? The Arminian view is not the same, all right? They believe in, in resistible grace. Now, remember, we talked about prevenient grace earlier. They're going to say, no, 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 each and every one of us has the ability to choose God. Why? Because he opens all of our eyes enough that we can have a choice. We have a decision to make, right? They would say, listen, does God show himself and we can have a real um, choice to be made? Absolutely, because we can resist him. That there are going to be plenty of scriptures that are going to demonstrate that we can resist him. Well, if grace is irresistible, then these scriptures shouldn't be in there. Right? Acts 7, 51. It says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Are we, ca are we capable of resisting the Holy Spirit? Well, according to that passage, absolutely. But hold on, irresistible grace says, man, when the Spirit shows himself to us, if we're one of his sheep, we're going to choose him. We can't resist him. Okay, so what is the scripture in there for then? If we can't resist the Holy Spirit... Why is it saying we always do? Right? Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed us and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you will not, you were not willing. Right, so now we get this other picture, right? So Jesus gives us a picture of sheep. The reason why you follow me, why you listen to me, Jesus is going to say it's because you're mine. I picked you, I chose you, I made you my sheep, therefore you follow me. But now we get this other picture of a mother hen trying to collect whose hens? Or whose chicks? Hers, not somebody else's. I'm trying to collect my chicks to me. And guess what? You won't listen. You won't come. Well, where's irresistible grace? If Jesus is saying, come to me, and you're saying no, then we can resist him, right? So this is what Arminians would say. No, 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 we're able to make a choice. We're able to make a decision. We can resist the Holy Spirit when he comes to us. We have a choice to make. We can say no, Okay. Matthew 22, 1 to 3, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been, what? Invited. So these people had been invited to come to the banquet, to tell them to come, but they did what? They refused. 
right? So an Arminian would look at this and go, no, 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 listen, God invites people to the banquet. He sent out the patient. You're invited. And guess what? You have the ability to say, no, I'm not coming. Okay, Matthew 6, 9 through 10. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How many people believe that his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven? That's going to open up a whole other can of worms talking about God's will. But generally, I think we would say, no. Earth, does earth look like heaven? No. Why? Because his will is not being done. There are people who go, nope. I don't want to live my life that way. I don't want to love my neighbor. I don't want to be kind to other people. I don't want to be compassionate. I don't want to be generous. I don't want to be those things. Right? So his will is refused. Isaiah 65, 12. I will destine you for the sword, and all you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. So do we have the ability to, to choose what displeases God? Absolutely. It's a choice that we make. Okay? Proverbs 1.24. But since you refuse to listen, call, and no one pays attention when I stretch out my hand. Again, we have this refusal to listen. God is calling. He's calling who? All of us, according to Arminianism. He calls each and every one of us. He gives us his grace that we can see him. We can choose him. We say no. His grace is reasonable. Joshua 24, 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, okay, so whose decision is it? If it's undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. We get to pick. We get to choose. We look at the situation and we go, okay, God, I see the way that I want to live and I get to pick, right? Uh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the addendum to that is because we have been chosen. No, it's not in there, right? He leaves it at that. Whose choice is it? It's my choice. I have looked, and I can choose these other gods if I want, or I can choose my God, okay? All right, so that's the conditional, conditional election. Again, Calvinism would say it's unconditional, right? God is picking you just strictly out of his love for you. Um, Arminianism would say, no, 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 we have a choice. We can resist God, right? His, his, his um, revelation to us is resistible, right? His grace is resistible. All right, so now let's go back to the L, limited atonement. And this is the one that gets a little bit, little bit iffy. I think a lot of Calvinism, if they're going to miss one of these or not agree with one of these, this seems to be the one that people, uh, Calvinists would say, ah, I'm not sure about that one, okay? Um, heard it this past week, said this. Um, what, do you call, what do you call a four-point Calvinist? An Arminian. So um, there are strict Calvinists that would go, no, 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 all these things go together, you can't deny any of them, Okay. So this is the Calvinist view of limited atonement. What does atonement mean? When Jesus went to the cross and atoned for our sins, what did he do? He paid for them, right? He appeased the wrath of God by paying the price, okay? What Calvinists are going to say is that atonement, what Jesus paid for, is limited to, to who? Limited to those he selects, those who were chosen, those who were picked. He paid for their sins, okay? Matthew 1, 21 says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save who? His people, their sins. He will save his people, the one he selects. Whose lambs do, does he die for? Whose sheep does he die for? His sheep, the ones he picked. All right, John 10, 14 to 15. says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for who? My sheep. Not other people's sheep. For my sheep. Right? John 6, 37 through 40. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but do the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who has sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. So who is he going to lose? Only the ones that haven't been given to him. If they've been given to him, he's not going to lose them. 
but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up in the last day. Okay, so in the context there, who is it that will receive eternal life? The ones that Jesus died for. Who did Jesus die for? Those he's picked. He's selected. Okay? Arminianism will have a different view. They will say it's unlimited atonement. Okay? That, that he died for everyone. Now, let me just put this as sort of a capper for, for the Calvinist view of this. So, if Jesus dies for everyone, as Arminian is going to argue here, and we're going to see the scriptures for this, if Jesus went to the cross and paid for the sins of every single person, whose sins are people in hell paying for? Okay, this is what a cow would argue. If there are people in hell, and we say there are people in hell, they don't get sent there for nothing. They get sent because of what? What, what, is, what, what is the wages of sin? Death. So people that die and are separated from God are there because of the sins that they committed. Well, if Jesus paid for every single why are people in hell? That would be the Calvinist perspective, okay? So Jesus must not have paid for the people's sins in hell, okay? Now, Calvinists would look at it a little bit different and say, no, 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 he paid for them. You just decided not to accept the gift, okay? 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understood slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, are we going to read that at face value? That man, do we believe that God's everybody to be saved? And Arminian would say, absolutely, it's God's desire to be saved, right? Or, or for everybody to be saved. Jesus went to the cross that everybody could be saved. Why? Because he wants to see them saved. First John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right? He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He says, yes, certainly us, the ones that are, that are following him and trusting him. But listen, he died for everyone. John 1, 29, the next day John saw Jesus toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now look, the Calvinists, again, will look at this, and in order for this, for them to, to justify this scripture, they've got to change some wording in this. They would look at this and go, well, it says world, but it doesn't literally mean world. That the word world here is being used in the same way that when it says, uh, when the religious leaders look and say, man, the whole world is following Jesus. Was the whole world following Jesus? No. Right? When I say, man, I went to Walmart today and everybody was at Walmart. Was everybody at Walmart? No, it just means a lot of people were at Walmart. The Calvinists would say that's what they mean by world here. When it says the whole world in these scriptures, it's not talking about every single person in the world. It's just saying that he died for many. He died for people in every single group. He didn't just die for Jews. He died for Gentiles. He died for black and white and rich and poor. That's what the whole world means, just everybody. Right? Not everybody literally, but just everybody, like we would use the word everybody. Okay, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, depending on how you're defining some of these worlds, a Calvinist would look and go, that, that's a Calvinist verse there, for God so loved the world. Because he's not talking about every single person in the world. And Arminian would go, oh yeah, it is. It, it, we don't need to twist the scriptures around. Okay, now I will say this, this is a little bit of an aside. Now, you know I'm a word person, I love words, I think we should dig in and find out what each one of these words means as much as possible. But if we find ourselves doing linguistic gymnastics, in order to make something fit our belief system, that's probably a problem. Does that make sense? Um, I've heard that, not that this is true in every situation, but the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things, right? When you read the scripture, Francis Chan is big in saying this. Um, it's not that I agree with it completely, but I understand where he's coming from. If you were to get away, from, get away with just you in the Bible and you were to read it, what were the things that you would come away with, okay? So I want to be careful. Do, do we need to study? Do we need to look at these things closely? Yes. But when we far, start trying to find what we want to see in Scripture, that becomes a problem. We begin to have to twist things and find obscure definitions rather than the plain definition. That becomes a problem. Two ways to study the Scripture, exegesis and eisegesis. 
Exegesis means that I look at the scriptures and I take out whatever I believe it says. I study it, I try to read it as best as I can and take away whatever it says. Eisegesis is to say I'm looking for certain things in the scripture. I'm going to take my opinions, my viewpoint, I'm going to try to read them into the passages. What we find is that so many people, especially in topics like this, Calvinism and Arminianism, is I'm going to the scriptures to find what I want to see. So I'm a Calvinist, so I'm going to look at all these verses to try to find Calvinism in each one. So when I find a verse that doesn't hit Calvinism, now I've got to find some reason why it doesn't. And that becomes dangerous. Okay? Uh, last one on that one, 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to, at, witnessed to at the proper time. Okay? So which one? Which scriptures are you leaning towards? Are, do you like the, the unlimited atonement where God died, Jesus died for everybody? Or do we like the limited atonement which says, I mean, he only died for those that he selected. He paid for sins, not everyone. Right? Um, last one. Perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. And this is another one that's, that's a big topic. Okay, perseverance of the saints. What Calvinism is going to say is that if God has picked you, so again, get the, get the pattern in this, so we're all depraved, we have no shot without God, God steps in out of his own free will, chooses who he wants to choose, right? For those people, he brings them to faith through an irresistible grace, right? He goes to the cross and dies for them to pay for their sin. They can be saved, right? And he will carry them to the finish line. Remember we saw earlier, um, he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. Okay, we looked at Romans chapter 8 earlier, and you saw the pattern of those. Those he predestines, he calls. That call is resistible because those people will be justified. Those that are justified will be glorified. Okay, there is a certainty in that. There is no obscurity, there are no exceptions, there are no well, sometimes. No, that's what it says. Those who he predetermines to be in a relationship with him, he calls. Those that he calls are justified, are, um, are, what's the next word? Losing my train of thought there. Who's he called? Are justified. Those that are justified are glorified. They are. Okay? There's no question. That's perseverance of the saints. Those people will not, will not fall back. They will not backslide. And I want to be careful how I use that word. We'll see that in a second here. Uh, John 10, 28 to 30. It says, I give them eternal life, and they shall not perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Okay, so the ones that have been given to Jesus, he says, will not escape my hands. No one can snatch them out of my hands. I heard a commentator say this one time. Are you a someone? Yes. So not even you can take you out of God's hands. This is the Calvinist view, right? So once you give your heart to Christ, once he has revealed himself to you, according to his plan and his desire, you're in there. You're a lock. Okay? Now, some people have a problem with that because they would look and say, man, well, that's um, unconditional salvation, then you can do whatever you want to do, right? That's, that's what Calvinists teach. Calvin would say that's not what we're teaching because what we would say is you were never saved. They would look and say, man, if you, if you are going to church and you give every indication that you're saved and all of a sudden you turn your back on Jesus and you start doing everything that you, anything that you want to do, he would say you were never saved. That's what Calvinists would believe, right? Okay, so the verses for that, some other verses. All right, Romans 8, 28 through 39. We'll read the rest of this chapter. We looked at a little bit of, of chapter 8 earlier. It says, I give them eternal life. Now, what I want us to hear in this, this is what the Calvinists want us to hear in this passage, is assurance. This is one of the benefits of Calvinism, an assurance to this. I'm not wringing my hands wondering, gosh, am I going to make it to heaven? Am I going to make it through? Am I going to, am I going to make a mistake today? Am I going to backslide today? Am I going to do this? No, no, no. We can have this assurance in God. Why? Because it's by his choice that I'm saved. Okay? Listen to the assurance that you hear in this passage. I give them eternal life. Now, who's them? Those that he selects. Those that he chooses. 
That's to them. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? So you hear the confidence that, that he, the Calvinists want you to hear Paul saying in this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Right? So you hear this? Who's our, who's our justification rely on? God, on Jesus. Us, it's on him. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Right? So we're not going to stumble and fall. Why? Because Jesus is interceding for us. Is Jesus going to fail? No, never. That's his point in this. Right? Who will separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am, you hear that again, through who? Through him who loved us. Not our effort, not our desires, not our choices, not our good choices or our bad choices. It's because of him who loved us. Right? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? Calvin's going to look at that and go, you hear the lock in that? You hear the guarantee in that? Why? Because God's the one to work. We can trust in him that he is going to carry us to the finish line. He's going to finish the work that he started in us. That's the Calvinist perspective, right? Charles H. Spurgeon, I love this. I love Spurgeon quotes. says, the believer, like a man on a shipboard, may fall again and again on the deck, but he will never fall overboard, right? So do Calvinists believe that you're not going to make a mistake, that you're not going to make bad choices? No, they don't believe that. They, sure, we're going to fail. Sure, we're going to stumble. Sure, we're going to sin. But here's the guarantee that we have because God's in control. That though we may slip and fall in his hands, we will never slip and fall out of them. Okay? No amens, but that's okay. It doesn't lock you in. It doesn't lock you into Calvinism if you say that. Okay? These, this is what the scripture says. Okay? Arminians view additional salvation. All right? So sal uh, what Arminians are going to do is they're going to come along and go, no, no, no. Our salvation is conditional on the choices that we make. That we can lose our salvation. I mean, we can choose God and then later on say, no, you know what? I reject this point. Okay? Calvinism is going to say, no way. You can't do it because your choice wasn't the deciding factor. It was God's choice. All right? Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened. Now listen to the language of this. Once who have been enlightened, who have tasted heavenly gifts. So these aren't people who are just uh, uh, spectators and bystanders. These are people who have tasted the goodness of God. Right? Who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to, the pu to public disgrace. All right, so what's this passage saying? And there are those people who come to the Lord, okay, who come to a relationship with Jesus and then turn their back on him. Right? And it's going to say, well, are lost. They're not saved. Okay? Um, this reminds me of, of the soils. Remember the parable of the soils where there's four different kinds of soils? The first one, the seed uh, is scattered, and the enemy comes and scoops it away, and those people never accept Jesus. Okay, those are people who never come in a relationship with him. But then the next two, it says that the seed gets planted and begins to sprout, right? One of them begins to sprout, but then guess what? The sun comes out, and the roots aren't deep enough. There's not enough nutrients and not enough moisture, and it withers and dies. Okay, so there are people who come into a relationship with Jesus, and then life circumstances, persecution, hard things come. The same thing with the third soil, right? The, the seed plants, sprouts up, and then the cares of this world, wealth and money and material things begin to creep in and choke it out. 
I think that's sort of what this passage is talking about here. For people who accept Christ and then deny him and fall away. Okay? 2 Peter 2, 17-22. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For their, they mouth empty boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. So what's this saying? There are these people who escape living in error, right? They escape sin. They escape all those things from coming to a relationship with God. But then they begin to hear these other people say these things that aren't true and are tempted away. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord Jesus Christ, right? So these people who have escaped corruption, they know Jesus and are again entangled in it. So now they've gone back into it again um, and are overcome. They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was on to them. Of them, the proverb is true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Okay, so can we lose our salvation? Can we go back to being sinners again? Uh, chained to sin and slaves to sin? This passage to say yes. Right? Finally, Jeremiah 18. Now, actually, this we'll do this in summary, kind of closing it. All right, so which side are you falling on? If you came in thinking you were a Calvinist, are you still a Calvinist? If you came in thinking you were an Arminian, are you still an Arminian? Have you picked a side? Which side is it? I don't think there is a side. I'll be honest with you. Like, I, I, I struggle with these. Like, even, even studying this week, some of my beliefs, I went, oh, man, I didn't put enough weight on that scripture. Maybe I'm on the side. Like, I would have said, if you would have asked me two years ago when I first did this message, before I started, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? I probably would have said Calvinist. I, I fall more in line with being a Calvinist. Then all of a sudden I start studying, and I go, well, wait, maybe I'm, maybe I'm an Arminian, right? So now I'm at the point where I'm, maybe I'm both, right? Joe likes to say Calvinian. Uh, A.W. Tozer said the same thing. A.W. Tozer said, I find myself, I've read all the scriptures, man, and I can't get away from both sides. I find myself being a Calvinian, right? And here's some of the past I think bring great comfort in that we don't have to pick. We don't have to choose. So I think this is something we have to understand. Before we identify with Calvin as being a Calvinist or an Arminian, we identify as being Christian. Right? That's the main thing. Above being Calvinist, and I think that's, that's a problem because sometimes people lose their identity in being a Calvinist and an Arminian rather than saying, I'm a Christian who believes in the Bible and is trying to know Jesus as best I can. He's trying to understand the Bible as best I can. And that's what we're doing. And I think the crazy thing is in the scriptures is that we're forced into a choice. Right? I think we're presented these two truths. Right? Where we would look and read. I mean, how, how many times did you find yourself just during today reading the scripture going, yeah, I think that's true. And then I read one that contradicts it or seemingly contradicts it. And you go, yeah, I think that's true. Right? I did it again last night. I did it again this morning as I'm reading it. I'm going back and forth going, gosh, which one am I? Yes, yes, yes. So when people say, hey, what do you do with this scripture? Do you believe that this teaches that um, God chooses people? That God selects people his own initiative because he loves them? Yep. Do you believe that we have free choice and we make choices that are real and really mean something? Yep. Well, how are both of those things true? I don't know, because the Bible says they're both true. I don't know. Listen to Jeremiah 18. 18. We'll give just a couple quick examples. It says, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the 